Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. Hello and welcome to the No Limitations podcast, a show where we talk to people who have achieved outstanding success in their careers and discovering the influences that have shaped their destinies. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. Today, I'm joined by Vic Bansell, Chief Executive Officer and Managing Director of CleanAway Waste Management Limited. Vic was previously President and Chief Operating Officer of Valmont Industries, a $3.3 billion New York-listed global engineering and manufacturing company. Prior to that, he's held senior line leadership positions with OneSteel and Eaton Corporation. He's a founding board member of the National Waste and Recycling Industry Council. Vic, welcome to No Limitations. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate it. Vic, you started life out in India. I did. I did. I was born in India, so I guess that's where I started my life. But you've traveled the world, have you not? I have. I have been fortunate enough. Um, I was born in India, in Delhi, and then have had an opportunity to work and study across the globe, both in Europe, America, and Asia. Yeah. And what drove you into engineering? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I still don't know that. Uh, but but, but, but I, growing up, I had a very strong interest in physics and maths. Um, and generally, when you grow up in an uh, environment in India, there is absolutely no choice of not going to university. So there's no option. Um, so the options, my father was a pretty uh, successful lawyer. Yeah. So the option was either law or something else. And I definitely didn't want to do, do law. Plus, I was good in maths. So engineering obviously appealed. How did you get to Australia? Um, I followed a girl. You still following her? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> After 25 years of marriage, you kind of follow her. Yeah. Vic, was she from Australia? Uh, she was born to uh, Indian parents, but in Australia, yeah. Okay, so you follow her all the way to Australia. What did, what were you pursuing in the sense of career? Well, I think uh, one thing I realized early when I finished my engineering, uh, at that, in those days, this early 90s, computer science was a big, big field. Yeah. So actually, I wanted to do a master's in computer science. So I actually got an admission into RMIT in Melbourne. So that was one of the key, also the core reasons to come to Australia. I came here and found out that... Um, you need to do a postgraduate diploma in engineering before you do your master's. Right, okay. And I started doing that, but kind of within six or seven months, I found out that was probably not my calling. So I went and started doing, looking for an engineering gig, frankly, mm-hmm. and ended up getting a uh, role with Alstom, which is a French engineering company, as an engineer. And I guess that's how my career started. How does an engineer progress to become a chief executive? Look, I think I get this question asked quite often, Greg, and I... I it's one of those things after doing engineering for three or four years, I always want to do an MBA. Uh, I did my MBA and I think that was the time I, I had a kind of a choice to make. I, I saw a lot of my peers uh, who were quite uh, good engineers mm. and I knew early I was not a good engineer, but I was very good with numbers. Um, I Doing an MBA was almost one of those seminal things when you did it. It was kind of a 
I won't say as strong as saying it's a calling, but I, I, that's, I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. And then I pursued my career in both sales, marketing, management after that. What did you love about it? Was it the fact that you got, you got to meet different people who weren't engineers, actually business leaders or from the sales backgrounds? What was, what was the drive there? I just, I, I mean, now I realize looking back, the, the, I, lo- I love the commerciality of it. Mm-hmm. Um, having a single dimensional view of a, a business from an only engineering perspective never appealed to me that much. So once you've done the engineering, you've got the maths and the numbers, all that right. Uh, the whole commercial piece of creating value, the commercial piece of engaging with people, commercial piece of uh, seeing a team or a business successful, that I find is quite engaging, quite intellectually challenging and engaging. So what was the stepping stones after the MBA, Vic? Look, that was an interesting thing. And I've been fortunate enough, like I guess most people who have been in, in my role, you'll they'll go back and say they were lucky moments or lucky breaks. Yeah. Um, I, I did my engineering. Um, the company had just taken up a, a, a particular product portfolio and without going into details, nobody wanted that because that was a failure written all over it. I took it. Uh, I took it. And uh, that was a joint venture with Alstom did with an overseas company. And that was a that was my stepping stone. I made that a pretty big success. Uh, I loved it, doing it, uh, when it was absolutely class failure all over it. And what that told me consistently in my life, I took chances which people would not take. But why was it a failure in everybody else's eyes but not yours? Because it needed hard work. It, it, it needed hard work. It was unknown territory and there's a lot of fear of unknown. People yeah. didn't want to challenge existing status quo. And, you know, it happens is more experienced executives you are, you tend to become a lot more traditionalist. So people were thinking from the eyes of what past is rather than what was possible. You know, I was 27-year-old. This is coming from an engineer who liked facts all the way through. Amazing. Think about that. But I just (laughs) done my MBA and I think my my ambitions got better of me. And at 27, I did not know any better, frankly, in hindsight. And I just wanted to give it a go. I was so keen to give it a go. And uh, so I had no... I had no status quo to meet. Yeah. I had no status quo to follow. Um, um, I remember we launched the product. There was I launched it the way it, I thought it was best to launch, and yeah. lucky me, it got successful. What did you inherit? What sort of staff did you have? What uh, support none. did you have? I had none. I was just given a product class, product category. Um, it was successful in Japan at that point, but not, has had not been launched in in, in Australia. Yeah. I had no product. I remember my boss telling me once, he says, "Well." I'm not so sure this will go. You want it, you can have it, but you do understand if you fail, you don't have a job. I said, well, thank you for the motivational talk. I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, so kind of there was no there was no going back, right? And so there was no staff. By the time I finished three and a half years after, that was the most profitable product for Alstom in Australia. Right. At a staff of 83. I was 30 years old and uh, was a star product in the Alstom category. So it was a very successful launch, successful product uh, marketing. What were you looking for in the qualities of the people who joined you? Yeah, look, I think if, if anything I've learned, um, and I've reflected on that quite a lot, my leadership style and management style has significantly evolved over the last 20 years. And I think, and I played sports quite young. I was a pretty good playing sports so you always been a team player you understand the team dynamics you understand how to get people motivated but i i all quite often say at that point of my career it was all about me right the whole ambition was about vic bansell yeah uh, i hadn't achieved the self-awareness of thinking well actually this is about team this is about the people i hire so i had absolutely aligned my personal ambition with the, that product launch 
So everything I did was around that. And in a hindsight, I look at it, it looks so immature and so childish. Yeah, but there was a lot resting on it. But but I think if I would do it again, I, my approach would be same, but I would have a, maybe even have a similar team members, but I would I would manage them differently. It wouldn't be about me. You know, it was all about me at that point. Um, and that reflected my management style. Uh, that reflected my leadership style. And uh, I mean, I we, we got them excited. The team was highly motivated, but everybody knew it was Vic Bansell's show. And I think that is not the good leadership. That's not what I would do now. That's not what the long-term sustainability is all about. So is that the old classic control and command style? Yeah, I would say that. At the early stages of your, my career, that was the driving force. It was me, ambition, my way or highway. And as you evolve as a leader, as you evolve as a manager, as you actually evolve as a human being, you understand it's never about you. It was, <laughs> it was product is still successful without me, and you just quite often leaders make it everything about themselves. How much time do you put in the actual strategy, Vic? Like you said, you've got a broken business. You've got to go and hire people, so you've got to sell them the dream. Yeah. And you obviously saw something in it. So where, where did you spend the time initially to make this successful? I spent a lot of time thinking. Even I still do that. I yeah. did that as a young lad. I did that as a college. I'm an, believe you me, I'm an introvert by nature. So I have a lot of time. I, I don't mind my own company, which basically means I don't mind thinking. Right. And uh, quite often, by the time I've landed on a position, even today, yeah. I probably put in 10 hours of thinking on a subject while others probably would come to the table with half an hour of thinking. And where, where does this thinking take place? Uh, on the, uh, quite a lot on the weekends. Um, yeah. I'm a, I'm a kind of a golfer, uh, a trying golfer, I should say. But I do a lot of, I have a lot of Sundays morning. I fly a lot. Um, and why people say, well, how do you do a lot of flying? It's good for me. I actually find it quite therapeutic in a strange way because that is my me time. Yeah, so right. people come out of the plane quite tired. I come out of the plane quite energized. Because uh, you what you you live in Sydney, Vic, don't you? And I live in office, Sydney. Office office in Melbourne. Melbourne. And previous to that, in Melbourne, I did a lot of global jobs. Yeah. So I don't mind that. It just it's just my time. So I, I get to think a lot. And what do you think of the um, the level of thinking in Australia and saying business executives compared to what you said you've worked in global roles? What do you see the difference in dynamics? Well, look, there's a lot of it's amazing. When I went to US and I worked in different parts of the world, I remember first time when I worked in China. Um, I could see the differences between Australia, Western world. And, and I actually, when I went to U.S., I thought culturally, culturally they were quite similar. Mm. But from a leadership perspective, it's fundamentally different, fundamentally different. And, and nothing is good or bad. I mean, this is not about comparing. And I joke around, in the U.S., when you become a CEO or a CEO as a leader, generally people give you the chance of, people would say, you must be smart, otherwise you would not have got that job. In Australia, it's exactly the opposite. When you become a CEO, they think you're the dumbest guy because why would you want to take this job yeah. until unless you prove yourself smart? So you, you start in a very different view. Ultimately, they catch up. You've got to be clever enough and smart enough to be able to manage people. But the starting points are always different. So there is a heavy burden of leadership in Australia. Mm -hmm. There's a heavy, heavy burden of leadership. And if you can manage in Australia... Uh, you generally are a very good leader. And I, I've, I've said it consistently that that's the reason why Australian leaders are very successful in the United States. Because we, we there is an egalitarian culture in the society. Yep. So nothing is given to you. Uh, nothing is granted. You Even if you have a title, you have to earn your capacity. You have to earn your leadership position. And that goes back to the earlier discussion I was having. 
that command and control of a 27-year-old Vic Mansell yes. uh, would not succeed as a 51-year-old CEO. It just, just would not work. You, they will, you'll get a chance for a year, but ultimately you cannot lead a team of 6,000 people with that kind of a style. So you, you engage, you improve. From 27 to 51, Vic, you must have been, are you one of these people who puts their hand up for the next challenge? I always have. I have to say, if anything which has helped in my career is all the risks I've taken is the risks which people have either declined or haven't been taking it. So I took that chance. Um, then um, um, there was a company called Delta, which was part of the Eaton Group. Yes, They were in a lot of trouble. Yeah. They were looking for a general manager. Um, people, I took that job. Uh, that went very well. Then Eaton, that got acquired by Eaton globally, and, and everybody said I should leave because... Um, uh, but I stood there and the, we ended up becoming the Asia-Pac head of Eaton. Okay. I was the acquired company. Then there was a role come in the U.S. Um, I took that chance to go to U.S. Uh, in the U.S. there was a global product I took, which was um, not doing well. So that worked very well. And, and is it the product or is it the people? Wait, look, you know, you're it's walking in, you're solving a problem. So what's the, what's the nut of what you're finding nine times out of ten? Oh, it's people. It is always people. I, I, I think... I think you've you got to have a fun foundation of a product or a, or a service or a business. I mean, you can't really create a good out of something which doesn't exist. Sure. But in my experience, nine out of ten is people. It's management, leadership. I, I think leadership is a highly, highly underestimated trait in society. And what really worries me, and we can talk about later on, mm. is that in modern world, attacking leadership, whether it's political, social, commercial business leadership has become a modern fashion. And I worry about the future generations. I grew up looking up to leaders, whether they were political, social, sports leadership, or business leadership. Yes. And if society become, it becomes a common practice that the moment you're a leader, you're up for everything. Um, I worry about my children. I worry about our children. Who, they, who, they, who do they look up to? If leadership becomes such a, you know, open. So I think... It's unfortunate. One, it's an underestimated trait. I think in most businesses, I think we underestimate that generally as a, but when you get there, I think we should be very careful before we're attacking it. It's a pretty lonely position. It is, it is, and, 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 but it is not for everybody either, to be fair. It is a lonely position. And that's why I say it needs to be cherished to some extent, especially good ones. Yes. Especially good. It needs to be cherished and needs to be supported. Well, leadership was certainly required when you walked into Cleanaway a number of years ago. What did you uh, What did you find? Well, um, I, why did you take it? <laughs> well, because I was coming back to us, to be fair. Yeah. So, for, so, Valmont, I was a CEO, as as Greg you mentioned before, and I was on a path to become the chairman and CEO there. Uh, companies in the United States have chairman and CEO as one position, as you know. Yep. Um, and I was definitely on the ta- task. I mean, that company only had three CEOs in eighty five year history, so. For a Aussie Indian to go to Omaha, Nebraska, Midwest country to become a chief operating officer and then become hopefully become a CEO was a kind of quite a big deal for me, and I was looking forward to it. Having said that, my family decided enough is enough. We are going back to Oz, right? Uh, yeah, and because my daughter was at that an age, and and generally women and wife have a very good sixth sense on these things, and and she did say to me at that point is that. Our daughter is at that age that if another couple of years in the U.S. and we're not going back to Oz, you know, she'll settle here and so we not need to make a choice. Men generally are quite single-dimensional, so I couldn't think that through. And she was 360-degree <laughs> thinking and she says, 
And that made a lot of sense. So we walked, came back. Uh, I had a couple of options in, in Australia. Yeah. And one of them was tra- in those days Trans-Pacific. Now, I, I can tell you, and it's public domain knowledge, the three offers I have, Trans-Pacific was the worst of the three performing by far. But it had an amazing potential. It had an amazing, it was an absolute diamond. Uh, board was kind enough to let me do some due diligence, which I did. What did that, what did that involve? Well, I, I, I checked with investors. I checked with shareholders. I checked with a lot of employees. I, I could talk as much as we can. I actually drove around, uh, in an old beaten van because I hadn't bought a new car as yet when I came to Australia to a couple of the transfer stations around clean, uh, trans Pacific to just have a look at it, safety record, people, etc. I spent a lot of time looking at the books. And that's where your maths, um, engineering insight comes into it. So I knew where the challenges was. I knew what I could fix. I knew what I could not fix. But I also knew what I did not know. And coming back from the U.S., I had a very good relationship with the senior executives of waste management companies in the United States who are amazing, amazing leaders. Mm-hmm. And I took a lot of their advice before I took it. I said, tell me what would you do with this? What? And they were very helpful. And then I took it. And I can tell you the day I took it, I rank couple of people to let them know and their answer was you dummy why would you do that because the company had four ceos in three years that's right if you remember greg I do. share price was sitting at 57 cents and it was in a lot of trouble as you would appreciate and i remember going to a couple of investors early piece and um, i've never seen a hostile investors like that and rightfully so i mean the company had lost a lot of money for them and nobody likes it of course so so it's quite challenging time, um, but people were good. People were amazing. Like, I mean, I knew they were earth, salt of the earth people, knew what they were doing. And I, I said to myself, in spite of four CEOs in three years, they could not destroy this business, which basically means the core is very good. Right. And I remember the old CleanAway, which is now back to new CleanAway, it's yep. the same CleanAway, is an 80-year-old company. There has to be something good. The people has to be good, right? Uh, in spite of all of that, customers were getting served. So what was the business was missing was a good leadership, yeah, right. right? And then we get on with we got on with the journey. Uh, I I did not call it transformation. I did not call it revolution as a lot of leaders do. No buzzwords. No buzzwords. I, all I said was we are on good to great journey. We said we are a good company, and this was the first time executives in our business had actually heard somebody describe company as good. Because everybody had said before, I'm going to transform this. And I said, this is a good company. I'm going to make it a great company, right? Now, I knew our cost was high. Uh, and I remember this is the only place where I've actually announced that I'm going to do cost cutting and people clapped. And the simple fact was, because for the first time, somebody was honest. Yeah, right. Somebody said, yep. I said, cost is high. Here's the numbers. I have no option. We've got to do this. And people said, we understand. And the, the biggest lesson out of that, I'd, I'll remember that in the afternoon, the biggest less personal lesson for me was just be honest. Just tell people are smart. They could see it. They could see the problems. And that worked out quite well. So rest is, I guess, you know the numbers for the last three years. How would you describe Clean Away? Oh, it's a great organization. It's an amazing organization. I mean, people co- call it a waste management company. It is an absolutely sustainable company. It's, a, it's all about environmental sustainability. Mm-hmm. Just to give you a scenario, there is nothing we do any single minute, any single day, which does not help planet Earth. There's nothing we do, Greg, any single minute, any single day, 
our 6,000 employees, which does not help planet Earth. Good reason to come to work. Think about that, right? And point I'm trying to, I've always said it, those day, climate change is the biggest topical issue. Yes. You agree? Yep. We all have targets. Countries have targets. Paris Accord has targets, all this stuff. World is now realizing you cannot get to your climate change targets by just tinting your windows. Those days are over. Right. The only way society is going to get there by manage its waste. It has to have a circular economy, which basically means you cannot do that without a company like CleanAway. We are at a cutting edge. We are at a pointy edge of something which is so critical for human species. And everything we do helps that. So where do you say us? Where are we on this journey? We just right at the beginning. In Australia, we are probably right at the beginning. I think, I think, I think there is a, there is an absolute emotional understanding that we need to do something. Forget what politicians are saying. Okay. Generally, society absolutely understands we need to do something. There's a lot of interest in it, right? Uh, but we don't know as a society what we don't know. Mm-hmm. That's where we come in. That's our job. So we have education officers going to schools, right? We did container deposit scheme in New South Wales. Yeah. We are collecting three and a half, four million containers a day. A day, Greg. Now, that tells us how much we drink every day. That's right. Right? But that also tells you people are voting with the feet. People are walking. I would have never thought 12 months ago that in rich suburbs of Sydney, people will put their cans and bottles in boxes and take it to a reverse vending machine to get 10 cents. They don't do it for 10 cents. They do it because they believe in something. That was an eye-opener for me, right? That's the kind of response we're getting. So society has moved on. Society has moved on to the fact that we need to do something. Uh, and that's where we're trying to do a lot. What's the next part of the journey then? You've started this part, as you say, the, the recycling. Talk us a bit more about the innovation and the thinking at CleanAway. Sure, 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 sure. So there's a couple of things. In, in a waste management company, there is a, if you call it a value chain, there's collections when you come to your home or shops and we collect uh, the waste. Then there's resource recovery where you actually take out resources out of it. Yeah. Right? Uh, and then rest could go to landfill or go to waste to energy or whatever it is. Right? So our, our game is all about playing that value chain. Mm-hmm. So first of all, is coming and telling you as a, as a society saying, listen, manage your waste, sort it out at your home. If you can't sort it out, we will sort it for you. But idea is to make sure it's a circular economy. As much as possible, the resources are getting reused. That's what it's all about. Now, in Scandinavian countries, there's no landfills. So what they actually do is they sort it out home. So if you go to countries in Japan or Scandinavian countries, you go outside their home on Monday, Tuesday, they have small little bags. Right. That what's happening is that Mr. and Mrs. John Smith in Denmark yep. is actually sorting out bottles and glasses and plastics and everything at their home, and they put it out out there. In ours, what we do is we give them massive bins. That's, yes. Yeah. So what we do is we put everything in a bin, which basically means you can't use that. You have to sort it out. That's where we come in. So we lift it, we sort it out, and then sell plastic containers, etc., all over the world or in, in Australia. The challenge in Australia is because manufacturing is not growing. Yes. So the use of that recycled materials is not enough. So we have to export it to Asian countries. It's disappointing. Which is disappointing. Mm. Uh, but having said that, the world is a global economy now. So yep. it is quite doable. Talk us through technology. Yeah, I think the biggest change in technology is around two things. One is uh, sorting technology, right? So sorting where you get, uh, companies would give us mixed waste, and modern technology can sort it out into glass, paper, cardboard. 
but also can sort out glass with color. So you can have a green glass and a you know your green wine bottle versus yes. white green wine bottle, etc. Yeah. So that is now ac- ac- quite actively available. The other technology is the the waste which you cannot be sorted out can be now sp- uh, uh, shredded, created into fuel with a right calorific value, right. which can burn in cement kilns or something else. So that's happening. We are doing that right now. Okay. Okay. So that's quite advanced now. Fuel technology is quite advanced. Truck technology is quite advanced. I mean, if you sit in our trucks, we've got about 4,500 trucks now. Think about that. 4,500 trucks. If you sit in a truck driver's seat right now, it's sitting like a pilot. I mean, you got an iPad, you got screen, you got 11 cameras. The, the guy can actually watch when he empties his bin. He can take a picture in front of your house when the bin is not there. So if you complain, we can say, sorry, sir, we were there at 9 a.m. Uh, it's like sitting in a cockpit. So that technology is significantly advanced. What is next stage coming through is connecting all this technology into one piece. Mm. You know, the fleet technology, the internet technology, the, the sorting technology, where customers would have a view of what their waste is looking at. That's what the next stage is. Where if you are a customer big enough, you can say, show me my waste. Show me line of sight of what you're doing with it. I want to be able to see absolutely exactly 100% what's happening. That's the next phase coming. Uh, so is that the analytics you're talking about? Or it's just come, yeah, analytics has to be part of it, but it's all about connecting all that individual pieces of technology into one. Is anyone else doing that, Vic? The Europeans are pretty advanced in that. Uh, I mean, Europeans are generally advanced in climate change, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Americans are not as far on this technology, but they're pretty advanced in landfill technologies because the land is pretty abundant there. But I think Europeans are doing a pretty good job. And Vic, you walked in and you said you're upfront and you're honest to the staff. When you started the role, the business has come on on leaps and bounds. We've read, we've all read the numbers. It may well be, I guess, an ASX 50 one day. Um, what's your ambitions? Well, listen, I, I think, as I said to you before, um, as I said to you before, you know, at, at, at 27, 28, when you become your first time uh, general manager, whatever the title was, it's all about yourself. Then you, then you grow older, you become ambitious about team. Uh, at my stage of my career now, I'm actually, my whole ambition is about clean away. That is all I think about. That's what my ambition is about because, and I also know if CleanAway succeeds, then the 6,000 people succeed, right? So that is my absolute goal. I still believe we have an amazing runway in front of us. Um, Greg, I can't tell you whether it's ASX 50 or not, but I can tell you in every other developed country, there's a waste management company in top 50. Um, Is that right? um, I mean, look at waste management in the United States, Republic, Veolia, Suez in France. Yes. So my point is, why should not there be a waste management company top? Now, I'll be happy with CleanAway, but there should be a waste management company top category, right? How far I can take it, I don't know, Greg, but it's a relay race. I'll take it as far as I can. And I'm sure if I'm, uh, uh, if I'm smart enough, I'll have some good successes to follow. Vic, on, on a personal level, what's your thoughts for climate change? Well, listen, I, I'm a firm believer in climate change. I think the world is changing. I think uh, human beings... But hasn't it been changing from day one? Well, it has been, but I think the speed of pace is quite frightening. And I think, and human beings have a lot to do with it. I'm a fiscally conservative and socially progressive, if I can mention it that way. Mm -hmm. On climate change, I'm a believer that human beings have absolutely done damage. And I think in the next 50 years, it's absolutely our job to get it back as close as possible to give it back to the next generation. Are you getting enough support from the government? What's what's their position? Look, I think I, I think it's uh, unfortunate at this point because there's a, not a clear 
climate policy in Canberra, as mm-hmm. you all know. Um, and, and it's unfortunate because, um, I think we're running out of time, not as a country, but just as a planet. And I think Australia has a role to play, a significant role to play. Um, and I, I just, I'm quite dumbfounded by the fact that when society has moved on, there's a definite gap between the society in general and where politicians sit today. Yeah. So we are getting caught up into that. They, one-on-one, we get a lot of support. So when I go to uh, uh, ministers, we get very good support. They're very good hearing. They understand the issues. Uh, but I think somehow the whole system is uh, letting us down. And what about when I read about uh, offshore in regards to China? Sure. And uh, the challenges there, what's it called, the national sword policy? Yeah. How is that affecting opportunities? Well, I think it, it, I think it's a it's a it's a right thing, and I, I, I let me explain you for for your viewers' benefit, for everybody's benefit, what that is. What used to happen, as I was telling before, is the developed countries, which is America, Canada, Europe, we are a consumer society in Australia. Yep. We would consume, but we are cutting down on manufacturing, so all our recycled products will go to China. Yes. Now that happened for 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, but what was happening was when we would send them one ton of cardboard, in a one ton of cardboard would be 100 kgs of plastic. So some poor Chinese would sit in China and sort it out. Right, okay. Right? So fundamentally what was happening was developed countries was making China as the garbage dump of the world. That worked for a certain time when the labor cost was low. But when China has now committed to the climate change and all its policy, they cannot accept that. So all they have said is, we are happy to have your recycled products because we don't have enough. We want developed countries recycled products. But for God's sake, give us a good recycled products. When you tell me you're going to send me one ton of cardboard, or send me 99.5% purity of cardboard so I can take it straight from the ship dock into my manufacturing. What I don't want to do is sort out your waste, which basically means what, what has happened, and it sent, it sent shivers through the global waste hmm. industry because it expected now the sorting to happen near the generation of waste. Yes. Now, what a novel concept that is, right? That should have happened a long time ago. Absolutely. That changed the whole global supply chain. Everybody would say this is the right thing to do. This is an absolutely long overdue. What surprised the world was how quickly China said something and implemented it. Uh, Generally, it has not happened before. So I believe it. we all got caught up into this Trump-China dynamics. um, And for the first time, China said, X date, we're going to implement it, and X date, they implemented it. And that took everybody for a surprise. Good thing. We we were always planning for a foot, our footprint strategy. We fast-tracked some of the investment, and we're sorting out most of the waste in Australia now. And you've done the recent acquisition with Toxfree? Yes. Why did you do that? What's the uh, the synergies you're seeking? Yeah, so that's about a $650 million plus acquisition. That's uh, one of the largest acquisitions we have done. Toxfree was another listed company in Australia, mm. very good company. Uh, they had some good, good assets. Um, and in our waste business, uh, you don't get assets. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You can't go and buy assets. You can't create assets from shelf. You have to go through a significant EPA permitting issue. So they had some fantastic assets. We knew the assets we needed, and they were at, at the timing was right, and uh, we bought them, and we got some fantastic people and assets. So we are now integrating them now. We went asked to the market. We'll have $35 million worth of synergies. And we're just working it through one by one, one day at a time. So you've made a major acquisition. You've got China, which has changed the policy, and you've got an opportunity as an exporter. Yes. And government is listening to a point. 
What would you like, if you could wave the magic wand, what would you like to happen down in Canberra? I think two things is absolutely necessary. I think good, bad, ugly, we need a climate policy. Very, very clear, soundly thought through direction for where this is headed. We need a clear waste policy. The country has no waste policy, right? Um, I think a clear waste policy is absolutely needed. What does that mean, Dick? I'll give you a very basic, simple example. And it's a very simple, simple example, but in a suburb next to each other in Sydney, a yellow bin means different to a blue bin in another suburb. Yeah, very true. Right? The bin sizes are different. Right? Each state in Australia has a different EPA with the different environmental laws. So you put yourself in a national position like CleanAway, we are kind of managing six countries. Right. Didn't realize that. Right? Mm. So what we need is a national cohesive waste policy. Right? So we, it's efficient. Yeah, it's actually genuinely efficient. It cuts down traffic on the road, actually cuts down fuel consumption on the road. It reduces the cost of running the business and actually effectively servicing the consumer. Right? Now, I understand Federation will restrict things they can do, they can't do. But an overarching, like a national electricity guarantee policy or national waste policy with a clear focus, we are targeting climate change and this is necessary, is an absolutely necessary thing to do. Where is that at the moment? Because that being debated? Uh, look, I think we've been talking to ministers individually. And as I said, I get very good hearing one-on-one. But I think somehow in this whole system, it doesn't get the attention. Okay. What else would you change, Vic? I think I think if we get that, I think I'll be pretty happy, uh, I think, to start with. Uh, yeah. So I think that's a fair expectations on our part. I think that that'll be good. I, I think I don't want to go into too much politics, but I think yep. st- stability would be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's, Which it's, is probably a topical issue for everybody else, yeah. So I think most business people, where do you see, without, again, getting about getting too deep into it, but where do you see uh, the marriage between business and politics at the moment? Look, I think... You know, I, I am a, I'm a firm believer people should stick with their knitting, right? And they should contribute to the topic which they can contribute to. Um, so, for example, as a CEO of CleanAway, I would love to participate and will jump over hoops to participate in the national waste policy or national environmental policy because that's my call out. That's what I do. I understand that I have some contribution to add. I am personally, and this is a very personal view, I am not a believer of me commenting on social issues. Um, and this comes back to the leadership issue we were talking before. There is enough attack on leadership today anyway. Yes, yeah, sure. I think opening yourself for attack is becoming quite, uh, it's not actually good sound business sense. I get a voice or a stage to talk because I'm a CEO of CleanAway, not because I'm Big Bansel which basically means when I'm talking to you in front of you or in front of audience, I'm representing 6,000 people. I'm representing a bunch of investors. I'm representing the company. You're also presenting the potential opportunity with the environment, as you say. Absolutely. So that is my subject matter. Some, someone who knows that knitting. Correct. And I want, to be, I want to actively participate in that conversation because we know what we're talking about. On the other issues, like social issues where business units comment, I normally keep reserve on that simply okay. because who am I to represent... 6,000 people on the social issues which they are facing. But on my environmental and waste management, I know exactly where we stand, want to contribute, want to participate. If we talk, let's let's, let's stick to that. Can you give us some examples maybe on numbers or um, some sort of comparables of the opportunities missed 
from Australia's point of view compared to Northern Hemisphere countries. The sense of efficiencies, outcomes, productivity, etc. is something we should be thinking about here. Well, I'll give you a simple example. Waste to energy is a good example, right? Waste to energy now is well-established practice in Europe. It's a well-established practice in South Korea, Taiwan, and Japan. It is becoming more and more prevalent in the United States. And waste to energy is where the products which we can't resource, recover, or recycle, rather than going to a landfill, uh, can go into waste to energy and incinerator. Now, in New South Wales in Australia, with the highest levy, so there's a tax we pay whenever you put stuff into a landfill. Yeah. Economically, it makes a lot of sense to have a waste-to-energy plant in New South Wales. Now, we would love to participate in that, mm. right? But whenever we're going to go there, or whoever is going to go there, we're going to have a significant need for social license to operate because communities will get affected. We'll have to talk to communities, and they'll have to support all that stuff. And at those times, leadership is needed. At those times, leadership is needed by politicians. And saying... This may not be perfect, but this is very good for this society. And I think companies should do a lot more to earn their social assistance. And I'm absolutely, but sometimes leadership from politics or government goes a long way, goes a long way. And I think that's where next debate needs to happen, especially in Sydney, New South Wales, and on waste to energy. Social media is obviously covering your role, your yeah. eyes there, Vic. Well, um, I know I have a, I have a daughter. <laughs> So I, I have a I have a very strong opinion on social media, Greg. Yeah, okay. Um, listen, I'll, I'll come back to social media and business. I think I'll I'll, I'll leave. Otherwise, my daughter is going to hate me for saying what I was about to say. Um, it's it's one of those things. I mean, the world has changed. Mm. But you could. Uh, but I was thinking you could actively use social media potentially. When you think about who, who who's across social media, people are very concerned about the environment. Sure. Is this something you, you guys could tap into in a sense of convincing or helping those ministers? potentially come along the journey a bit faster? Yeah, I think what we are trying to do very hard, and I think we're doing a good job, is position CleanAway as an absolutely thought leader in waste environment. So rather than being negative about it, we're being very positive about it. Sure. So we're saying, if you want to understand anything about environmental waste, CleanAway people way to go. And companies who become thought leaders in this space generally ended up, they take charge of the conversation. So that's what we try to do actively, positively, proactively. Don't get me wrong, we are getting one-on-one lot of attention but I think it's the system politicians are stuck in right now, you know, with the way the system is, with everything else going on. But when I speak to them one-on-one, I don't leave the room thinking, I don't think so, he got it or she got it. They get it. They understand it. Does the analyst get it, Vic? Because you've you got the really difficult role of being a CEO of an ASX-listed company, which is getting growth, which is doing acquisitions, and those analysts and those shareholders and those investors wanting returns. Yeah. And yet it's a bit of a long-term play. Yeah, well, listen, I, I, um, we have a very good investor support and analyst support. I mean, we wouldn't be here without their support. I mean, they believe in us. And we just did, a, as you said, tax-free acquisition. We went to the market doing for equity raising, and they gave us a very good support. So we are appreciative of, of that, and they, they believe in our story. They absolutely believe in our story. But I'm also pragmatic enough to understand that they have to do their job. I mean, they're investing you and my super. Yes. Um, and if I don't deliver results, then they are in trouble. So I understand it's a capitalist society. That's how it works. And I got to do my job and they're going to do theirs. But because we are delivering, we are getting very good support. And that's all I can ask for. In every discussion we have with Chief Exec, technology or the word digital comes up. How has it affected this sector? They rather call it technology rather than digital. I mean, technology overall. I think at, at this point, um, in waste, technology is more of an enabler rather than a disruptor at this point. 
But where the digitization is coming through is in the whole customer service process, where from what we call call to cash. Mm-hmm. The moments of truth, as I call them, uh, when somebody in cleanaway interacts with customer, whether it's a driver in the morning at 4 a.m., yeah. uh, or a call service person, or an invoicing person, or a salesperson, those moments of truth, that interaction happens between a cleanaway person and a customer, those moments of truth can be a lot more faster, sharper, clearer, a lot more data-driven analytics. You still have a human relationship, but they can be a lot more qualitatively better by technology. Right, So I don't get hung up too much when people talk about digitization, about cloud and all that stuff. That's, I mean, that's now like having a TARS on your car. I mean, that's just given. right? Yeah, right. Uh, what I am more interested in, what does it do for that moments of truth? There's no use having the best technology if the customer can't service better, if I can't pick up waste faster, if I can't resource recover better, if I can't create better earnings, if I can't service customer better. So to me, digitization as an engineer... Uh, electrical engineer, to me, they are nothing but more uh, enabler to ultimate role we exist is to provide sustainability. When you discover those moments of truth as the chief exec, how do you engage your staff to take them down that journey of solving these problems? And where do you spend your time these days, Vic? Is it more around the thinking? Is it still around the strategy? Is it building the morale? Is it engaging with customers? Is it all the above? Where's, where's, the CEO of CleanAway spending their time? It's all of the above. I mean, they're all my stakeholders, I guess, right? I mean, employees, customers, investors, they're all my stakeholders. So I'm very mindful of not letting the ball drop. And uh, like yesterday, I spent six hours going from one side to the other in Melbourne. We started at 5.30 a.m. in the morning. Right. did the first town hall meeting with a bunch of truck drivers in one side. Um, then went to five other sites, finished at 3 a.m. And all I did was talk. Funny enough, I just talk between one group to the other group to the other group. And it's fascinating. I, I just I find a lot of energy in that. Um, I find a lot of energy when people ask a lot of questions and they are very engaging conversations. So I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. I get a lot of enjoyment out of investor relations uh, because I get put on a spot. They ask some tough questions, which makes you better and sharper. And the customers are good because that proves whether our moments of truth are working or not. Yeah. So those are the moments of truth which we either create value, destroy value. Um, so I, I don't prioritize that way. For me, my days are full and I go from you know one to the other consistently. What do you look for in a leader, Vic? Humility. That's a big thing for me. So the way we describe leadership in our cleaner way is three C's, what we call three C's. Huh? Capability, commitment, and compatibility. There is no shortage of capable leaders in the world. Capability is education, your experience, your smarts, your intellect, all of that stuff. There is no shortage of commitment either. A lot of people are committed. They want to do the right thing, whether it's they are driven by their own personal ambition or whatever the life stage they are in, they're committed. Where the biggest rub is is the compatibility. And older I've gone, and it's amazing I'm saying that because I, my old boss used to say that 10 years ago and I'd never believed him. But it's amazing how value compatibility is so critical. I spend most of my time looking for leaders who are compatible with the culture. All my hiring process, Craig, so people interview people, and yeah. I say, you check for capability, you check for commitment, you do all the questionnaires, but I want to meet a senior leader finally just to check on the compatibility. Right? So I spend a lot of time on that. And I think at certain stage in your life, in your career, when you're in, as an organization's life, when you're moving fast, you're growing fast, what you can't afford to do 
is have a senior 50 60 leaders who have not emotionally surrendered themselves to the cause of the company that's where the comparability came you should intellectually challenge ideas you should intellectually challenge concepts and intellectually challenge the direction but once it has been agreed if you can't emotionally surrender to the cause you're consistently letting the team down if you can't emotionally surrender to the value system what we believe in that fundamentally comes from humility if you don't have humility as a human being you're consistently challenging everything because it's you're challenging for the wrong reasons and if one thing i've learned absolutely in my career is humility is just the core of a good leader you'll be smart you'll be intelligent you'll be the brightest man in the world or woman in the world but without humility you can't actually lead and where does the culture come from vic so it start from the top and work its way down oh absolutely i think leaders set the tone of the company so is it the chief executive or the board or is all the above where, where do you distinguish bearing some, in mind all the discussion going at the yeah, moment yeah i have some empathy towards board on that one fairly i mean board attend seven meetings frankly and that's chief executive one i mean i take personal responsibility of that that's my job to deliver right of course uh, i'm responsible to the board um, and it is my job and duty to show them what i'm doing but i take full responsibility the culture of the organization that's my job i am the custodian as a chief executive i'm the custodian of the values of the organization that's where i draw the line and uh, and humility is one of those some particular values so what's on the next 5 years agenda for clean away listen we have a very very exciting strategic plan we are very clear on it we are working through that day by day is locked in and uh, in fact we are working through a document that finally for the board for the october board meeting and this afternoon and went through that and i just can't stop smiling after that if i we can deliver it we'll do another podcast in 5 years time i'll be a little bit older and smarter <laughs> but but it'll be good fun so Vic, well, I appreciate your time today. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Congratulations on what you've achieved. It's been a fantastic journey. Again, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate the time. Thank you've you. You've been listening to No Limitations. 